Robin is one of maybe 4,000 other men and women who were killed by mobs in that time period. And I, I think for me, just the weight of all those lives, and more importantly, the weight of how those lives were stolen from the historical record. that Montgomery, Alabama came to grips with its history of racial discrimination and lynchings. That turned out to be a perfect opportunity for the city's hometown paper to examine its role in perpetuating racism in the Jim Crow era. I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. I'm joined in studio today with Amelia Brust, one of our producers. Hey, Amelia. Hi, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Let me ask you, you actually set this uh, interview up. Uh, What was it that sort of jumped out at you that you thought this would be a good one to do? Well, I remember reading the editorial from the Montgomery Advertiser back in April when it came out and the other stories that went with it, and it just really stuck in my mind. I thought it was a really unique and incredible endeavor by the paper. So when you asked me if I had any suggestions for some upcoming guests, I immediately thought, we've got to get those guys on the podcast because I really want to hear more about that whole series. Yeah, as do I. And here we do have two guys in the podcast Mm -hmm. and they're waiting to to talk. Broke Crift is the executive editor and Brian Lyman is the state government and politics reporter for the Montgomery Advertiser. Welcome to the podcast, Bro and Brian. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Okay, the re- the reason we're talking to you today is what Amelia was alluding to. As back in April, you both wrote an editorial about the opening of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. The editorial begins with this admonishment, we were wrong. And then you go on to describe the role of the advertiser played in the history of racial pre- injustice in your in your city. So, so let's start with you, Brian. How do how would you describe the advertiser's role in promoting racial injustice through its history? You know, what what examples can you give? The advertiser was editorially was very. Um, it wasn't that it promoted things like lynching, for example, but it was incredibly callous and indifferent to lynchings when it when they took place. Uh, I read through maybe 20 years of news stories and editorials on this uh, on this stuff, and there was always a sense of. You know, yes, lynching is bad, but but you know we we don't want to do anything. We really don't want to do anything about it. And there would always be this what aboutism if if a if a north if a northern newspaper dared to say anything about it. There was always a presumption of guilt uh, by the lynching that the you know people who were lynched they pro- they did something that that deserved lynching, which the newspaper never promoted, pushed any evidence forward. Uh, it, it was just this really um, callous indifference to what was what was happening in the state of Alabama at the time. And it almost, it bleeds into like a certain cynicism as well. If, if you read the advertiser's later coverage, for instance, of the Montgomery bus boycott, the newspaper's coverage, generally speaking, was this kind of amused cynicism, which was wholly inappropriate to the to the news events of the time. And then 10 years later, when you had the Selma to Montgomery march, there was actual hostility directed toward civil rights protesters. I mean, this newspaper did not wrap itself in glory when it came to racial issues. And you're talking right through the civil rights era. So, bro, why did you feel it was necessary to write about this now? I think it made sense 
for us, if we were having this huge memorial museum opening up in our community, we recognized early on that it's going to matter not only to this community, but the world as a whole. And if you look at the idea of the memorial museum, you're supposed to look at the past and understand where you came from and reconcile with those issues. Us compared to other people, for example, I didn't exist in, in the 1860s, but the paper did. We were very much a part of it. And if we were going to examine our role or we're going to be asked that within the memorial and museum, it only made sense for us then to write the news article that Brian described that looked at our, our position and, and who, who we were or what we were as a paper, but then also to reflect on it and take responsibility for, for what occurred and, and how we proliferated that idea of white supremacy. Brian Stevenson talks about truth and reconciliation, often when he talks about the Memorial Museum and the development of it by the Equal Justice Initiative, it only made sense for us to speak some truths about our roles and then ultimately reconcile it with the community as a whole. And then I would argue, you know, even outside of our community. It wasn't just the editorial that you did around the, um, the opening of the memorial. You also did a whole series of stories about uh, some of the events that, that the advertiser had covered over the years. Can you sort of talk about some of those other stories and, and what you know how you approach them? I'll, I'll take this one, Brian. The, we started very, from the very beginning of the series. We started uh, with Brian's story that looked at um, our role and from a news standpoint, because we thought that was important to start the series off with examining how we covered lynchings. And then throughout the series, we examined specific lynchings. And I think Brian can talk about one um, that he discovered about Robin White through his research on the other. We looked at lynchings from the mid-20th century, 1947, uh, Elmore Bowling. We also looked at and examined what this memorial means to the city and the community as a whole within the neighborhood that it's in. Um, Cottage Hill as well is what this represents for the South and Montgomery in terms of the, the changing atmosphere in the South. And we also looked at what this means for healing when you have a large museum and memorial like this and how, how maybe the community can change and then I mean, ultimately the, the country can change because it exists here in Montgomery. So, you know, it's kind of interesting that you you timed all this with the 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 opening of the memorial. What was what was kind of the conversation going on in the newsroom? You know, what were people thinking? <laughs> you want me to take this one, bro, or uh... <laughs> Yep. Yeah, okay. I I I mean, I think well, I I can speak I can speak for myself. I mean, we had this national monument for we we have this national monument to lynching opening in our in our city so of course we want to prioritize that we know this is we know this is a big deal and uh, i for for me personally i mean it, this sort of started out as a um as, as a historical project, and then, like Bro mentioned, the story about Robin White, and you know, I, I found that was probably the only trial in Alabama before 1980 that resulted in prison sentences for white men convicted of lynching a black man, and they were unfortunately, and they were all later pardoned as a result of political pressure. Or not all of them, three of them, but the. I think for I think for me this it was very difficult because like when you're when you're just reading through these lynching stories and you're 
confronting the transcripts, there's such a when you when you hear the lynchers words they're not even viewing their victims as human they're not expressing any regret for what they for what they did and in many cases they're just trying to downplay the severity severity of what they did there's really there's not even like an expression of sympathy um for for the victims and i you know what really came across to me is just how little we know about the victims of these lynchings. They, you know, Robin White basically exists as a census entry in the 1900 census and in a few mentions in a, in a couple of court records. I mean, we know he was a, he was, but there's so much that we do know that just, it screams to learn more. He was 27 years old. He was married. He had a brother. His father, who was born into slavery, was still alive at the time that he was murdered. That Robin is one of maybe 4,000 other men and women who were killed by mobs in that time period. And I think for me, just the weight of all those, and more importantly, the weight of how those lives were stolen for the hist- from the historical record, that that's something that sticks with me from reporting this from reporting this project. It's important to point out what, what Brian just said. You talked about those four thousand victims and Robin White in general, or specifically, excuse me. We have a responsibility as a news organization to explore who people are and not to pass judgment. And ultimately, by the way we chose to cover those stories of the lynchings, we were passing judgment. And I think we all saw it as an opportunity to explore a little bit deeper and get those stories out about the people that we'll never know. One of the most heart-wrenching things that I read in Brian's story about Robin White. The only words that we know about him are through the eyes of the white men who were accused of killing him because of trial transcripts. And the only words we know that came out of his mouth were um, goodbye, I believe. Um, That's it. That's the only word we know. And I think we all saw a responsibility not only to the the men and women like Robin White, but we also saw a responsibility to the community to to explore these issues. One of the prouder things that I heard throughout the report of the series and then what was released was when Brian said, I've never cared about a story more in my 18 years than I have about Robin White. That's really cool to hear as an editor. And we're just talking about a man that we know very little about, and he put so much sweat and effort into that. He spent hours in the state archives just looking into Robin White's life and trying to find out as much as he can. And I think that's what resonated with the readers, not only in our community, but beyond, that we were telling those stories stories as the EGI memorial is opening. It really, really meant something. I'll just add to that that when when the memorial opened, I interviewed a woman who helped collect the soil from some of the counties where these lynchings took place. And we, we were talking, and because each volunteer had like a certain victim with their name on a jar, and um, they filled up the jar with soil from that county. And she told me that she felt what she didn't know anything about the man that she was filling the jar up with, but she said after this project, she felt like she was that man's tombstone. And to be honest, that's kind of how I feel about Robin White. So, I mean, obviously, you touched on it a little bit that this was. I mean, there are a lot of barriers in reporting this story. It's just very little information. What did you have to go through to sort of dig deeper into these stories, to try to try to get some justice or, or try to tell those tales? 
The main obstacle, as, as Bro alluded to, is that for the lynching victims, what, so much of what we know about them comes from the eyes of, of white people and white people who were tremendously indifferent to their plights or their suffering. So to go through those records and, and try to scoop up those details, like that was difficult. Like when whites wrote about Robin White, they, they almost never mentioned him, but they said he was a bad character. They didn't explain what that meant. But, you know, just trying to find something that would just, you know, allow you to visualize just who this man was or what he looked like. Like, we don't have a physical description, but we know the night before he was killed, he was held at a at a general store, and in the court transcripts, one of the witnesses said he asked us to go to his wife to get a change of clothes. It's like those kinds of things that you can't, like you can't really find. I mean, just just basic stuff you want to learn about these folks. I mean, they don't even have death certificates. You know, like the man who confessed to killing Robin White lived to be 92, and you can find his death certificate on Ancestry.com. I mean, there's nothing like that for Robin White. These folks were not only just I mean, you know, they were killed physically, but there's some deeper spiritual murder going on here because they leave hardly any trace in the public records, largely because people didn't want to talk about it and really wanted to forget about these killings once they took place. And that to me, I mean, I think that to me was just the most difficult thing. I mean, you were just really scrounging these records just to find anything, anything at all that would just, you know, be able to put a face on these on, on these victims. Clearly, they they weren't being treated as human beings, and so the way that their their information wasn't even recorded, it, it just almost erases them from from yeah. existence. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it makes your job harder trying to go back and trying to shed light on on these uh, these cases and, and these incidents. So, what was the uh, what was the reaction in, in the Montgomery community to your project? I would say, and I think this surprises a lot of people, but overwhelmingly positive. That's within the community and outside of the community. I guess I should answer in two parts. Within the community, I, I did, as the editor, get a few calls asking us to move on. Because while this released daily online and the, the big worldwide web world, you know, you release one story or two stories related to lynchings, uh, especially at the length that some of them were written, like his Robin White story was close to 8,000 words. It doesn't in the big ether, it's not that much. But within a paper, a printed edition, when it's day after day, there were some people saying, you need to move on. And we politely told them that this was part of we, – we couldn't, and that was part of the narrative, is the idea that we, we moved on for too long and we need to explore these. I can say that our uh, president publisher was at a chamber meeting the day that our cover was released where we listed names of lynching victims and had the editorial explain that we were wrong the day of the opening of the Memorial and Museum, and he received just compliments right and left from community leaders, and these are the community leaders for, you know, I would say multiple generations at a chamber meeting. We also received this. I love this. We received postcards in the mail from people from California, from Montana, from across the country. And it really means something, I think, to the newsroom that somebody took the time to pull out a postcard and address it to us and write us and tell us thank you for for the coverage that we did and our exploration of lynchings and our role in it. Like, I I hold on. I've held on to them because to me, it's one of the prouder things that I've received 
received, uh, or this newsroom in my two years here has ever received. It's it's better than any email you can get in the modern world to get a, a, a thank you card. And I would say, you know, I don't even – we may have gotten one cancellation of the printed edition. I mean, there certainly was zero discussion of it. It, we, it wasn't a concern. I think the community understood why we were doing it. And the, the difference is, too, as opposed to just pointing the finger outwardly, we were also pointing the finger to ourselves as well. And I think that mattered a little bit um, within the community and, and pointing out, hey, that we, we were a part of this. It's very, very admirable that, that I think that you took that, that approach that, you know, that let's, let's look at our own house and see what, you know, what role we played in this, this ongoing injustice. And maybe not, you know, as you said, not promoting lynching, but it certainly not, you know, presenting it in a way that's, that's going to draw attention to the negative aspect of it and bring any criticism toward it. How was the attitude of uh, the Montgomery community changed? you know, in recent years toward racial injustice? Hmm. It's a good question. I, I mean, if you're going to ask, like, you know, there's there's certainly nothing like, a, I wouldn't say there's a lot that's overtly racist in Montgomery anymore, if there's, if there's anything at all. I think there's more of a willingness to at least face the past and acknowledge and even, you know, celebrate especially when it comes to the civil rights movement you know we have a we have a museum devoted entirely to rosa parks in our downtown and we've we had we are basically like a a mecca for when it comes to civil rights to civil rights stuff now how we confront the legacies of segregation and slavery that's a much more difficult question to to untangle i'm not sure we've i'm not sure montgomery has gotten there yet i mean i i, I think this city is coming to grips with its with its past, you know, for the good that happened and for much of the ill that happened. But, you know, slavery and segregation and lynching, these all left deep scars, even, you might even say open wounds in this community. And those were made over hundreds of years. It could take hundreds of years for us to really fully heal all those wounds. It's a complicated question to answer because at the mm-hmm. It's so entwined into everything about this community. I mean, you have to remember at the same time we had primaries going on and we had a Republican candidate, our governor, who was talking about the Confederacy, the Confederate memorial um, statue protections and ads. They're healing wounds, as Brian said, and I think there's a recognition in Montgomery that while you're coming to grips with something as painful as this is, people respect a person or a community coming to grips with that. And so I think there's a little bit more recognition of of wanting to understand it and talk about it as we move forward. So what what do you think prompted this this change in attitude? The, is it just I mean what prompted the memorial? What, you know, what got this this sort of front and center that this was something they that the community thought that it needed to address? Well, the, what prompted the memorial was Brian Stevenson and the work of EJI. I don't think it would exist in Montgomery now uh, if if it wasn't for the Equal Justice Initiative um, um, being here and their research about Montgomery and uh, in terms of the domestic slave trade and how this was the, the heart, the epicenter of a lot of that domestic slave trade along the Alabama River and recognizing uh, that there were slave 
pens, essentially, and slave markets that are all throughout downtown and people that profited, including this newspaper. We would run, we would be the people that would print the, the auction slips and, and manuals for these, these auctions. Um, so if it wasn't for them, I don't know if it would, it would exist here. Um, it was very much driven by Brian Stevenson and, and his staff. There's no doubt about it. It wouldn't exist otherwise. So what's next for the, the for the Montgomery advertiser? What what do you see as your role going forward? I think that we need to be aware of that we need to be a, a leading voice in terms of the conversation, positive conversation, not fights, when it's related to social justice and social issues. Uh, we recognize that there was there are people that want to explore these issues like we did in the lynching series uh, related to race relations, to, related to women's issues, related to how we live together, uh, and we need to take um, part of our time, if not a large of it, exploring those and, and introducing those questions and potentially some of the solutions to, uh, to those questions within the community. I mean, we're fortunate that we, we live in Montgomery and that we work in Montgomery. And it's a, it's a center for civil justice. It's a center for civil rights. And I consider uh, when I was looking at newspapers and a place to come, I couldn't think of a better place than Montgomery because people here are working towards those issues. And we need to be a part of that. And by saying working towards those issues, I should say working towards uh, answers to those issues. I'll just um, I'll just say for myself that I think the lesson I got from from the lynching series was that this this newspaper refused to see lynching victims. They just looked past them, or they or they reduced them to certain easy stereotypes for 80 years. I think the lesson for me is just kind of reflect on who out there, who we as journalists out there, who we're not seeing, who we're looking past, who we're reducing to stereotypes and just realize there are there are human beings out there and human stories that need to be told. This is a small thing. I should add this, but it, I think mm-hmm. the lynching series played a part in it. Mm-hmm. So we had been running arrest mugshots and photo galleries on our website, you know, 20 a day. And it was just, we would we would pull them from the website. And we'd been struggling for a year talking about the idea of like, does this make sense? Does this make sense? And uh, we'd had conversations in the entire staff, not just the, the editorial leadership, the entire staff about it. And then after the series um, come June, we, um, we stopped running those mugshot galleries because we found out through research that uh, what we were doing was p- uh, putting a light on uh, the impoverished because the way we were getting them was um, your your mugshot only existed on the website for the sheriff's office if you were still in the jail. So if you bonded out, your mugshot would disappear. So of, say, about 350 mugshots for the month of June, we published online only about 180. So what we found out was we were highlighting the poor, people who couldn't afford to get out of jail. And we, we realized that that was not a good thing. And I would say that us exploring and looking at how we represent people within our newspaper is definitely one of the outcomes of, of the series. That's actually kind of what I wanted to ask you about is if doing this series has made you guys as a paper sort of re-examine how you approach like crime coverage and uh, coverage about race related issues have you guys started uh, you know catching things like 
the mugshot gallery, other things that maybe you were doing in the past that you think that's kind of that's kind of outdated now, or that's actually more harmful than helpful that we should stop doing. And are there things that you guys have started changing about your reporting that you think other outlets could adopt? Because the the issue of how journalists cover crime as it relates to race is a constantly evolving thing, and there's still a lot of growth that needs to happen there. I would say that it's having the follow-up questions um, to both sides. Um, I mean, obviously, you believe police because they are authorities, um, and, and so therefore we tend to publish what they say on the record more so than, say, victims or victims' families. But uh, I think we need to, and it's hard with staffing changes, but we need to do more follow-up stories where we reach out to people that are a part of the family, say the victim's family or the accused's family, because we can certainly learn more um, and, and, and explore those crime stories beyond just a person was arrested. Here's what they were accused of. Um, this is what the probable cause affidavit says, and just be done with it. I think we need to spend more time in communities in Montgomery than we are, uh, particularly impoverished communities, communities that we don't spend every day in. I think, and this is something that we are conscious of as well, is having a diversity of voices within our newsroom people from different backgrounds and can bring different perspectives and us being aware that not everybody sees the world the way I do um, and always being conscious of that. Um, I had an episode in Corpus Christi when I worked at the Collar Times one time. A, a young woman was confronted and there was video of it, of her being confronted by an off-duty police officer who was working security. And the way I viewed the video was completely different than a, a this young woman that was in my newsroom. And I just kind of had a light bulb go off that neither one of us was wrong. Neither one of us. It was just a matter of how we approached it and being conscious of how we approach things in our in our newspaper really matters. Everything you were saying there, you rang so many different bells. These are things we've talked about on our podcast a lot about, you know, crime coverage, about diversity, about race, about being knowledgeable, about, you know, making sure that you're, you're inclusive of different different viewpoints to uh you know, and open to to seeing things in new ways to to improve the way you're doing your news. I think that's what you guys have done is is pretty admirable. And you know, I was really happy to have you on the podcast, Rowan Brian. This has been great. Thanks for for coming on. It's all journalism. Uh, there's going to be a link on our website to this project, and I and uh, I, I, I encourage people who are listening to this to to check it out. It's pretty powerful. Thanks. Thank you so much. Yeah, th- thanks so much. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Amelia Brust helped with our pre-production. Nicholas Hunter provided web support. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Would you like to find out more about our podcast, including upcoming live appearances? Go to itsalljournalism.com, follow the link at the top of the page, and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Each week, we do a little recap of that week's show. We talk about topics that have to do with journalism. We share some links for some of some stories we think are really kind of interesting. And we let you know what things are coming up. For example, we've, uh, we're working on a live event 
And we're going to have a big announcement soon about a partnership that we're working on. You're going to find out about that first if you're a subscriber to our newsletter. So again, go to itsalljournalism.com, follow the link at the top of the page, and subscribe. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The Finish the Game Podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean. Across the 10, the 5. Touchdown, Seahawks. Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.